Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Bowler Brim. So this is going to be more of a reaction than some of my other uh, podcasts, which are usually about like actually reviewing a particular subject. But in this case, let's talk a little bit because uh, Warner Brothers, which just got bought out by Discovery, is talking about remaking The Lord of the Rings. And I cannot think of a dumber thing to do because all that a remake this close to the original one being made where there's like still several generations who were children, adults, even elderly who were alive and, and everything when the films came out. It is still too fresh in people's memories. You don't want to do a remake unless the first film wasn't done right the first time. And in this case, it was done fantastically well the first time to the point where just about everyone has seen the movies. The films themselves are iconic to the point of memes. Uh, you can, you know, you, you always have at least one friend who will do the Smeagol voice. It's just, it's there. You know, it's in the popular zeitgeist. It is not something that has somehow escaped our attention. And Warner Brothers has been falling into this trap of remaking and remaking and remaking in order to try and find some new success. But then, surprise, surprise, a lot of the stuff that actually brings them success is usually the stuff that is somewhat original. Now, I, I, I'm going to go into some of uh, some other points in a minute, but let's take a look at some of the films that were some of the most successful out of just the past recent years for Warner Brothers. You've got Wonder Woman and Aquaman. I didn't even think Aquaman was a hit, but it was. And I was genuinely surprised when I saw that it was popular, that it made a lot of money, that it was actually uh, more popular in many ways than a lot of the Zack Snyder films, as was Wonder Woman, because Wonder Woman was something fresh. It was something we had not seen before, and it wasn't completely centered around uh, specific characters that we had already seen done several times. This is one of the reasons why, for me, uh, doing Superman Returns was a little bit painful, because... I was already a big fan of the original Superman, Christopher Reeve. Yes, I know George, Reeve, George Reeves technically played uh, the uh, the character first. I can never remember which is Reeve and which is Reeves. Don't bug me on this. Uh, anyway, so everyone kept saying that Brandon Routh, I think it was, looked exactly like Christopher Reeve. I'm like, um, no. <laughs> I'm sorry, but no. No more than Kevin Spacey looked like Gene Hackman. I mean, maybe if you were in a hurry and you hadn't seen their faces several times already, there might have been a bit of a resemblance, but not really. Anyway, so just given that, Superman Returns is easily one that flopped, yet the game was surprisingly good because it had a lot of, a lot of variety to it. I actually have a copy of the game, and I've seen Let's Plays of it, you, ha you don't just go through the story of the movie. You actually have a lot of expanded content and a lot of stuff that you have to do outside of just uh, what goes on in the movie. There's a lot of subplots and side quests that you have to take care of, including all new villains that you've never encountered before, especially in the movie, because you, you, you barely see anyone but um, Lex Luthor in the film as the villain. This is one of the reasons why having the same villain in every movie is so painful, because uh, Megamind absolutely nailed it when they said if you have just the same battle over and over with the same villain, 
It gets tiresome. It gets cliche. Oh, how is the villain going to do it this time? What's his next plot? Why is why does he keep getting out of prison? Even in uh, the original run of the Superman films produced by the Salkinds, you had a little bit of mockery done in as to, okay, so this time Lex Luthor doesn't have uh, his buddy played by Ned Beatty. Um, instead, you, you've got Lenny Luthor, his nephew, who we've never seen before. Uh, and then he's doing hard labor in uh, a rock quarry because reasons. Yeah, it it, it just gets a, a little bit past silly at that point when you have to keep bringing back the villain. You know why people liked Superman 2 better than Superman 3 and 4? Because you had a different villain. You had General Zod and his associates. This was a different take on the story. It was new. It was exciting. You had Lex Luthor brought in, but you didn't have just Lex Luthor there as the villain. He was more uh, roped into it as part of it. But uh, just focusing on General Zod as your main villain with his friends, that was a way better story because it's new. And a certain amount of novelty and innovation makes for a better experience. This was the reason why you had better experiences with Wonder Woman. And even Wonder Woman 1984 was better than having to sit through one more Superman or Batman story. I've never even seen uh, the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern, uh, apart from like some parts of it, as I recall. It wasn't especially remarkable, but, you know, at least it's different. At least it's something. It's something that isn't exactly what we had before. Whereas watching, like, Man of Steel was totally just the same story, just reinterpreted and with different stuff. And instead of uh, John Kent uh, dying from a heart attack and uh, everything, you had him dying in a tornado where he actually told his son, no, don't save me. I'm going out to save the dog, but don't save me. It's like, okay, wait a minute. So you can go and try to save a dog but I can't go out and try to save you. This is why the remakes don't work. If you're going to tell a Superman story, don't go back and retell what happened. We already know it. When a lot of the comic books that these are based on bother to tell a new story, they don't spend time flashing back to some point in uh, Clark Kent's formative years that has already been told way too many times. Same with Batman. They don't necessarily tell you exactly the same story. They might tell you a little bit of something different. Uh, I'm thinking of like Batman the Animated Series, uh, where we're introduced to Zatanna, and they show that, oh, for a while he studied with a magician. Okay, that's actually really interesting. That's a different side to Bruce Wayne's quest than we've seen before. Likewise, uh, when uh, Bruce is under attack from a ninja... And this was actually, uh, they actually told this story, I think, in, in two different parts. Uh, two different stories that focused on this um, antagonist. They bother to show him going and studying at a dojo to learn how to be a ninja, to learn the art of ninjutsu. So this is fascinating. This is a different part of his past. 
So to me, this is one of the reasons why some of this works. Uh, getting back to Superman for a minute, when we talk about Jonathan Kent dying of a heart attack, it's something where literally Clark cannot help him. And he is standing there. The younger actor, not Christopher Reeve, of course, is standing over his father's grave. And he is uh, saying all these powers and I couldn't even save him. This builds up later when we have Lois there dead having died in his arms, I think, if I remember correctly, if not just dead before he could get there. And he goes up into the clouds, and he, he is haunted by his past. He's like, all these powers, and I couldn't even save him. That is a haunting thought, that even if you have all of these powers, the powers of a demigod, essentially, um, you are not omnipotent, nor omniscient. You can't know everything, you can't uh, do everything, you have limitations. That's very much what the first Superman film is about. It's about understanding that even if you have amazing abilities, you have limitations. It's a brilliant story. Uh, and then in the uh, scene that, in the end of this, the graveyard scene, you see, uh, you see him hugging Ma, Martha Kent, and uh, in that moment, I like to point out to people that in that moment, Clark is hugging his mother as gently as he can, and she is hugging him as hard as she can. So there is a differentiation in terms of how much strength is used in that moment, because uh, he doesn't want to hurt her, and she knows that she can't hurt him. That itself is an incredibly powerful footnote to the scene. So given all of that, Superman Returns was at least tolerable. I could sit through it. I could enjoy it. It was a little bit weird that he was basically stalking Lois, which, yeah, don't do that, Clark. Uh, but then you get into Man of Steel, and it's like, why are we telling this story? Like, this is, this is just a reiteration of Superman 2 with some different stuff. Some, you know, this is just Superman 2 with extra steps, to paraphrase Rick and Morty. Um, yeah, it, it's like, why are we doing this? Why are we going through this? Tell an original story. Have an original villain that hasn't been seen in the movies thus far. And to the praise of, like, Aquaman, that was actually something I liked. Because you didn't just have, uh, like, some conventional villain that we'd already seen. No, you, you brought in... Uh, Black Manta and Ocean Master as antagonists for him. And you also had just the general forces of uh, the various Atlanteans throughout the ocean, which I loved because that was itself innovative. You had different types of Atlanteans. So basically all of the development was worth it because you could have these different interpretations where some were more human, some were more shark-like, some were more uh, like uh, merfolk, it works, okay? It actually works in a lot of ways. Uh, you had uh, elements of Wonder Woman where instead of going into World War II, she was back in World War I. So there were certain differences that just made it work a little bit interestingly without it being too easy to compare to like Captain America or something. I mean, I could at least follow along. There were a lot of points that I genuinely enjoyed. The moment that that uh, steeple exploded, I genuinely busted a gut. 
because it, she just flies in one, two, three, boom, it explodes. It's too funny. But, uh, you know, you don't see why it explodes. There's no flame, so it's obviously not explosive. It just explodes because Wonder Woman flew in through a window. Uh, but that's new, isn't it? One of my favorite movies uh, from the DC Universe was actually Shazam. I liked it because it was a hero we hadn't seen before. It was very much uh, a different kind of story where it wasn't like, oh, you have limitations. It's about... You have limitless powers, and you need to limit that yourself. You need to hold back. You know, so Billy Batson is learning this. And then, at the end, spoilers for those who don't know, he introduces the Shazams, the Shazam family, where the other children in this uh, foster situation all get the powers of Shazam. And they get differently colored costumes, and they're played by different adults of different... Uh, sexes and uh, colors and that is great you know they're, they're different ethnicities it's it's a wonderful uh, aspect of the story that we hadn't seen before even even at our at, at, when you like watch like Justice League Unlimited or something like that you never saw that before so this worked I haven't seen every piece of DC media but I've I know that much I, I've seen like the Lego Shazam movie as I recall and it was okay but we didn't see that so what I'm saying is going back over and retreading the same ground again and again doesn't give audiences what we want. We want you to expand on what's already been established. So just for example, having uh, the Justice League movie where you've got Batman, but he's not the Batman that we've seen before, but he kind of is, except that he's got some stylistic elements that are different. Um, so it's like, you know, there's just too much uh, of a mix-up. You know, you've got the costume that's made to look a lot like uh, him from The Dark Knight Returns. They're going to fight just like in The Dark Knight Returns, but it's not The Dark Knight Returns. And, oh, if he punches you with a, with a, a pair of knuckle dusters or brass knuckles, however you want to call them, that brand you with the bat symbol, then it makes you a target in prison so that then people come after you which means that Batman has now violated his no-killing rule because he has marked someone for death. A lot of people point this out. But at last count, just in live-action Batman actors, I think this is the seventh one? Like, if we're counting Adam West, let, let's think through this. Adam West, Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, uh, Christian Bale, um, Ben Affleck, and now Robert Pattinson. That's at least five live-action cinematic Batman. And now we're bringing back Michael Keaton for the Flash movie because we're kind of telling the story of Flashpoint. Okay, that's way too many Batman. And, you know, it's fine if you want to recast because, like I said, I could tolerate Superman Returns where it's supposed to be in continuity with the first two Superman movies and then just ignoring Superman 3 and 4. We wind up with a whole situation of uh, the Halloween franchise where uh, the Rob Zombie version was redoing something and then going back with a certain continuity and ignoring that certain films happened and then the remake of the remake 
ended up going back and ignoring that a bunch of other movies happened, and so now the Rob Zombie one is taking place in some kind of alternative universe or something. It's like, no. It, it Just stop remaking. Stop going on brand name recognition so that people just compare it to what other people have already made. I'm like, this is why, in a lot of people's opinions, you don't remake Gone with the Wind. You don't remake, oh, what else, uh, Citizen Kane. You don't remake Spirited Away or The Third Man. And I realize that's two Orson Welles movies. You don't remake a lot of movies. When they actually remade uh, Psycho, they made it, apparently, they, they intentionally remade it so bad just because they didn't want anyone else to try to remake it. They wanted it to be such a colossal waste of time and money that it would discourage people from remaking uh, a lot of Alfred Hitchcock's most popular films. And I'm glad for that. I would not want to see a remake of North by Northwest. I love North by Northwest. It's one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. Vertigo, same thing. I love Vertigo. I do not ever want to see someone remake Vertigo. It is fine as it is. It does not need a new retelling of whatever is going on in, in one story or another. You don't need to see a remake of The Birds. You don't need to see a remake of Dawn of the Dead or something like that. Or they even remade Night of the Living Dead because I guess they were able to do that. And like, why? Why would you remake what is already there? And uh, mind you, I liked the casting in it. But it's practically a shot-for-shot shot remake. It's not adding anything. It's just in color. That's the difference. Why are we doing that? It's, and, and to be honest, you wouldn't want to remake Return of the Living Dead either, which didn't even have Romero involved in it. You wouldn't do that because remaking it would mean trying to recapture that lightning in a bottle. You have just so many factors coming together in a lot of these different stories, the way that they're told, that trying to recapture that is painful for the audience. And we have people still alive today who were who were full-grown adults when some of those films came out. So therefore, remaking a lot of this stuff just doesn't make sense. So remaking Lord of the Rings alone, you would not have a lot of the different stylistic elements. Peter Jackson, ever since he did the Hobbit trilogy, has just gone and done nothing but documentaries. And I can't blame him. This is a man who loved doing uh, very, films with very fantastic visuals, like those, um, those uh, zooms where the, the image would be slightly skewed, or when you would do an establishing shot from a helicopter where it would just kind of circle around wherever you were to give you a sense that this is a real location and you're getting a bird's eye view of it as you're swooping past. This is genuinely something that works, okay, because it establishes a real world for us. But what would they possibly do? We've already seen The Hobbit get made with a lot of expanded content so that it could be made into a full trilogy of films, many of which are way too long and have way too much added content padding it out, including the addition of a love affair a forbidden romance that didn't need to be there. And and I enjoy that part, but I also appreciate that it's completely unnecessary. There are several fan edits out there that you can look up where people have bothered to just rework The Hobbit 
into one solid film rather than you know any of this other stuff and those are usually long enough that you could easily have a two-parter so it works and it's no different really from watching the extended cut of uh the return of the king or the two towers or anything like that in terms of feel but it keeps it as one story just like when you watch the extended version of any of the original lord of the rings trilogy and i've watched uh the rings of power the amazon original it's good i don't hate it it's just very confusing because they keep trying to have you guess as to who is what as the story leads on you're trying to figure that out and because you've already seen ahead it's it's like if you read ahead in a book and you read a chapter what you if you read the last chapter of the book and you're trying to figure out how they got to there that's what it ends up being like for people who have already seen the original version of the films there's not a lot you can add to a retelling complete retelling of that this is uh, a lot like what's happening they're talking about remaking harry potter with a new cast and everything it's like why why would you do that oh well because the first cast rejected jk rowling's transphobia um you know that's not the reason that that's not the reason at all we're 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 remaking it because we have better special effects now it's like no you don't it, it wouldn't matter what kind of special effects you could put in you had great music great direction great acting and at best you only have a few minor plot points that you could put in from the books i know because i read all the books but the thing is warner brothers is specifically trying to distance the franchise from jk rowling and when you have an author who is specifically making money off of this franchise so that people are not going to buy the new online multi player uh role-playing game and they're not going to go see the movies they're not going to go to any events they're not going to go see the wizarding world movies uh like uh, the fantastic beast series guess what you have lost because you aren't willing to rein in this personality that is so problematic I, and this is something i feel very upset about with ezra miller just losing their marbles and it's like okay you need to have an intervention with miller because this makes the flash movie problematic it makes the wizarding world movie problematic because you you cast this person and you focus on them it even makes watching uh the remake of the stand problematic because ezra miller is in some of the latter episodes uh and they actually tried to keep that one a secret uh but some other aspects to just the stand remake as long as we're talking about remakes it's mostly about people comparing one to the other because the last one only came out a couple of decades ago you know we're not you know it, i think we're talking like barely 30 years and yeah it's like you have better special effects so you can make the sick people look grosser but we don't need that because the story isn't about sick people the story is about the living people the people who survive this outbreak now mind you uh around the same time they produced a film uh, or a series called uh, station 11 which was also based on uh i believe it was a graphic novel and i thought it was brilliant it had me bawling i mean genuinely in tears and all because of one subplot one little story that they had going on where 
this one guy, he's got some issues. He hears voices and things like that. Um, I guess he used to be on drugs or something. And this little girl is abandoned at the theater. She's just a little extra. She's a child actor. She just plays a small part in a show. And she's still wearing the medieval uh, gown and everything. And the child wrangler abandons her. And he's like, okay, well, I'll take you back to your house. And, you know, because they got to get through Chicago. It's the dead of winter. And there's nothing that uh, she can do. She's a child. Children are relatively helpless. And he even asks her, like, don't you know where you are? Don't you know how to get home? No. So she is genuinely helpless in this moment. And he decides to be kind. And over the course of time, they try to stay in an apartment um, uh, that belongs to his brother. They try to do everything that they can just to survive. And they wind up hiding out in an abandoned cabin for a time. And then he disappears. And that isn't what, what quite got me. It, it got me a little bit because I was like, he's not giving up on her. He's not abandoning her. He's got his own problems, but he's putting those aside for her. It was when it was revealed that he didn't, he didn't just disappear and he didn't just die. He was always trying to get back to her. He was always trying to make sure that she was cared for, that she would survive. And it was just that act of selfless love that made me bawl. I did not have reason to cry at the Stand remake. I cried at Station Eleven because it just broke me. That that story just broke me because it was so touching. It was so loving and selfless. I, I And then years later, she's grown up, she's an adult, he's older, he has a family of his own. They meet, and they still care about each other. Oh, I was back in tears, folks. I honestly was. So, given all of that, that's what I'm talking about. That's why it's fair to assert some of this stuff. A remake does not give anyone anything to be stirred about. So, if I wanted to go with, like, just an absolutely bizarre uh, connection, but... So let's talk about Sandra Bullock movies, because I know a surprising amount about Sandra Bullock movies. So my absolute favorite Sandra Bullock movie, and this has nothing to do with Sandra Bullock herself. She just happens to choose to be in movies that I really like. And so I've, I've gone to the bother of actually collecting a lot of her films over the years because I tend to like her films, even if I don't especially like her acting. So it, it's just this eerie coincidence. It's like if you liked things that happened to feature cheese, but cheese didn't necessarily do anything for you. Yes, I'm comparing Sandra Bullock to cheese because like cheese, she's very popular. Like cheese, she's very versatile and tends to blend well with a lot of other things. So Sandra Bullock is cheese in this analogy. And anyway, so 28 Days is my favorite of her films. And it is nothing to do with her. Because when I first heard about 28 Days, I had no idea what, is, what it was about. Um, it was just the most generic name. It doesn't really tell you anything about it. But as soon as you understand what the film is about, it makes total sense. But what I love about the film is the writing, the cast, the 
performances. And I like the performance that Sandra Bullock gives. She does bring something to it, but that's because she is a working actress. You bring her on a production. She learns her lines. She is there on time every day. She is ready with hair and makeup and wardrobe and everything. She is not sitting off in her trailer being a diva and, you know, worried mostly about herself. She is there and ready to go. From the word action, she is on. So this is one of the reasons why people like working with her, why they like casting her, is because she comes to work. Whereas some people come to play around, they come to be celebrities and movie stars, and Sandra Bullock doesn't do that. When she shows up to set, she is there to do the job. She is there to earn her pay. And that's one of the reasons why uh, she gets cast in so much. But you could not remake 28 Days. And I, this is a movie that I've easily watched a dozen times. Don't ask me why. Just for some reason, it works for me. I, I can't explain exactly what it is about that versus the proposal, which I'm not as big a fan of, even though I don't hate it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't hate the net. Uh, the net is a perfectly fine film. Um, Premonition is a lot of fun. It's easily one of the funnest movies that, uh, in terms of like mystery thrillers, I, that one, I absolutely love the premise of, and she does a great job in it. But 28 days registers for me on so many levels. It just hits all those perfect notes. And if you were to try and remake pretty much any one of these movies, I would actually have a huge problem with what you're doing because they nailed it the first time. And these are films that easily came out around the same time as your Lord of the Rings and whatnot, and ones that easily made plenty of money. So, you know, we can't even begin to talk about that. But when we're talking, when we're talking about remakes, as long as we're on that subject and we're talking about Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings, let's talk about King Kong. What did uh, all those different versions of King Kong over the years actually bring to anything. Well, the first one was just amazing. They they highlighted what you could do with stop motion. They told a compelling adventure story that featured uh, a lot of innovations from a giant uh, a giant monster ape puppet that they could control to uh, do some of the things to the stop motion animation, of course. And it looked very realistic. You had big dramatic set pieces like the top of the Empire State Building, the airplanes flying around. Your suspension of disbelief was maintained throughout. I watched this movie as a kid, and I still loved it, even though, you know, by contrast, we had movies that were far better made. Okay, what about the 70s version with Jeff Bridges? Well, that one you had uh, some cast. It was largely tapping into the disaster movie uh, trend that was very popular at the time. And it was just saying, okay, well, we're going to set it in a different place this time, so we're going to change that up. Okay, but that one did not resonate as much with a lot of other people. That was a big factor here. So then, move ahead to Peter Jackson's King Kong. What does that one do? Well, it's very vivid visually because Jackson is a very visual director. It adds a little bit. It has some appeal of the cast. I think the strongest uh, thing that it honestly brings is the innovation of the new visuals. 
they were able to make a lot more of the story into this very visually interesting piece. You had the attack of the giant insects when they're in the trench. You had much more realistic dinosaurs. You had uh, the look and feel of Jazz Age New York. So this felt very much like it was just taken completely out of time. There was, there was a very realistic sense that you were there in that time period even though these are contemporary actors like uh, Jack Black and Adrian Brody and all that. So, okay, you've got all this going for you, and you watch it, and it's longer than the original, of course, but is it bad? Is it worse? What? No. It's its own entity. That is the distinction. Because at, at the point that we're talking about with uh, the 70s version, they're largely relying on brand name recognition, and then they're trying to reinterpret it slightly into a disaster movie, similar to your Earthquake, your Towering Inferno, uh, all those kinds of things. So it's, uh, it's not original enough. It's not its own thing. This one, it's Peter Jackson taking something that people recognize as an older movie and redoing it. By contrast... A lot of the Godzilla movies were continuing to be made for years on into the 90s and the 2000s. And one of the last ones to actually see a theatrical release uh, from the original Japanese filmmakers, uh, the original studio, was uh, Godzilla 2000, which had a whole plot involving Mothra. And it was interesting enough. It used some CGI. It, was, it, it got a little bit of play in theaters, I remember. And it wasn't bad. I didn't hate it. It was just very silly. But, you know, a, a little secret here. The Godzilla movies are supposed to be silly. By contrast, you get the American versions, right? You have that one with Matthew Broderick. And for some reason, he, in this case, Godzilla is a mutated iguana from the Bikini uh, Islands or something like that. Uh, the, the Bikini Atoll. And now he's or she is stomping around New York City and the scale, no pun intended, but the scale of the monster is constantly changing to be uh, only this big, like as big as a building, and then uh, to be slightly smaller. It's like, are we sure there aren't more than one? <laughs> and then on top of that, you get an entire scene where the baby Godzillas are all in these giant eggs the size of people, in Madison Square Garden, and then they're attacking people like they're the raptors from Jurassic Park because Jurassic Park was still a big thing. Okay. But that remake stunk, and people really didn't like it. Like, I, it, in my mind, at least, it was relatively okay. It was definitely a Roland Emmerich movie, but it was, it was okay. You know, it, it was better known for its soundtrack than anything else. But okay. Then you've got the re-remake that came out uh, a number of years ago. And that one was just no comedy, really. Just all action and disaster and everything. And I'm like, okay, we have ventured so far from the source material. We absolutely have. How do, how do we even go back to the original and talk about it? Let's think about that. The first one was... Uh, easily seen as an analogy for nuclear power and how it had kind of taken its toll 
on the psyche of the Japanese people, the, the feeling that there were powers far beyond the capabilities of humanity to deal with, that there was something sublime out there that wouldn't even care if it stepped on you and to you, to, to it, you were but an insect. So you, you directly compare that with the 90s version of Godzilla. What have you got? Is it anything remotely like that? Is it teaching people to be humble before the, the power of nature or the power of, uh, of uh, these primal forces like the atom that you know we're just tapping into? No. It's just a disaster movie with a monster being chased around by helicopters through a city. And there's different people with different ideas of how to deal with it. Okay. Then you get into the current incarnation with Godzilla and then Kong Skull Island, which is just a retelling of part of the story of King Kong, where Kong doesn't come to New York or anything and is just there and just and we're just going to have like all kinds of other weird stuff going on in Godzilla versus Kong, which itself was already made, but okay, we'll just go with it. And now they've got um, weapons specifically forged from material that can kill Kaiju. Okay. Um, what? Oh, well it's because if you go, uh, through a hole to the center of the earth, there's another land there, and that's where, and, and you can access it, uh, you used to be able to access it through Skull Island, and uh, all of Kong's other gorilla brethren, these giant gorillas, would uh, defeat the kaiju from time to time. Okay, can we stop already? We're, we're adding in so much stuff that has nothing to do with the source material. It's, it's taking what was already there and while yes, I will give it that it's new, it is taking too much of what was already established and throwing it out. That's the problem. You're not building, you're coming up to the blackboard where someone has already written a, a perfect story. And you're erasing a whole big chunk of it and just going, okay, we've got a giant ape and we've got a giant lizard and we're going to have them fight, but why are they fighting? We've got to write in all this extra mythos to all of the story, and that's what we're going to make our movie about. Uh, can we not? Honestly, that's the point where it, it broke me. And I was just like, I don't want to watch these anymore. At this point, it was just an endurance test to see how long I could go for. Because like a lot of kids, I grew up loving Godzilla. They used to show the movies on uh, broadcast all the time when I was growing up because it was cheap to get the rights to air that stuff. The local stations would show it on weekends, and it was a great way to just kind of occupy yourself for a little while. But so help me, when they decided to remake it, I gave it a shot. And I actually liked the remake of Godzilla a little bit better because, why? It was largely about feeling humble before this power of, th this overwhelming power that was far beyond the ability of humanity to grasp. And... The only thing that I didn't like was they had some kind of little beacon or something that was attracting the monster, and oh, now the, the little girl's going to run away through the building because the monster's going to come at... No, we don't need that. These creatures are not supposed to care 
about humans. The only giant kaiju monster that cared about any humans, especially children, was Gamera, the giant turtle. And I loved me some Gamera, because who didn't love Gamera? Some of the movies got a little bit dull, especially for my kitty brain, but <laughs> it, it was still a cute enough concept. It was still something that you could enjoy. Okay, given all of that, would I like it if they remade Gamera? Absolutely not. You can add on, you can build on, but you don't want to just sit out, sit there and make a flat-out remake. If they were to try and remake um, To Kill a Mockingbird, or remake uh, Gone with the Wind, or, or any of these movies, it would be a huge problem. We know this already because they already tried to sort of remake Jurassic Park. They tried to remake that trilogy by making Jurassic World, and nobody liked it. It was a flash in the pan where people were like, ah, oh, it was kind of cool, okay, but not really. Why? Because it didn't really build. It just tried to give us what we had already seen. And it, it, it caused us to have way too much suspension of disbelief. And then there was that scene where the one secretary just kept getting tossed around like a rag doll before it finally got eaten by a giant. She finally got eaten by a giant monster. There was no point to that. That, you know, that, oh, well, she, she's, she thinks she's safe and then she dies. Well, who was she? Were we supposed to not like her? There needs to actually be some pathos to this. There needs to be some, some payoff. Like with the lawyer getting eaten on the toilet, we already don't like the lawyer because he abandoned the children a moment before. We know that he he's just, you know, some jerk only interested in money. That's his comeuppance. That works. But just flat out uh, having an innocent person who has not done anything that the audience might find reprehensible suffer and die? No, we don't need that. Who needs that? I don't need that. What's the payoff? It's one of the reasons why uh, when they um, when they brought out The Matrix 4, I was genuinely glad that they went the direction they did by actually satirizing some of the different minds that would want to, that were trying to contribute ideas for making a new Matrix movie or remaking it in some way. Because that just uh, chef's kiss, just beautiful. I loved it. Just taking it into that comedic role and then having the story play out and having, having the characters play the way that they did. Having the Merovingian come back as a character was actually satisfying because the Merovingian was a very compelling villain and was a character that we never really saw a resolution for. It worked. So you have so many elements to that particular one where that wasn't a remake. It wasn't a complete reboot. It was just telling an additional story that comes in after. And it works. It's solid. But Warner Brothers ignored that because some people didn't quite know what to make of it. And I'm certain that a lot of executives didn't. But by contrast, we got, um, we got the Flash movie coming up. And that at least looks like it's tolerable even though we get double Ezra Miller, which I'm not sure anybody wants. Then we had a Batgirl movie that was almost completed, canceled. Why? Why on earth would you cancel that? 
we have proven that there are audiences for female superheroes or superheroines, if you prefer. We've already proven this. Wonder Woman was a success. Wonder Woman 1984 was relatively successful. People didn't completely hate it. I didn't completely hate it. I know a lot of other people didn't either. We just didn't like it quite as much as the first one, which is okay. It's a sequel. That's normal. But we liked the Supergirl show. We liked a lot of the stuff that we got in the various uh, CW super soaps. You know, these are examples of where we can make this work. A lot of people liked uh, the Batgirl solo adventure that was uh, part of uh, Batman Arkham Knight. They actually wanted an entire Batgirl game after that. There was a lot of call for it because they enjoyed the gameplay on that uh, on that particular uh, DLC. Uh, it, it, it just, it works. We liked the Catwoman levels. We liked playing as Catwoman in a lot of the Arkhamverse games. It works. It's a solid part to the story. So why they feel like they have to keep remaking everything is just frustrating. You don't have to. This is the problem that Disney keeps facing when it remakes a lot of stuff. Because what's really happening is they're just trying to maintain the license because they haven't done anything with the product in years. And they're about to lose their license on a lot of uh, these things. Like, um, oh, uh, one of the reasons why they finally made uh, Return to Oz was because they were about to lose that. A lot of reasons why they will make something involving like Winnie the Pooh or something was because they were going to lose the rights to that. But eventually the rights to Winnie the Pooh lapsed. That entered the public domain, and now anybody can make a Winnie the Pooh thing. Uh, I think Oz finally entered the public domain. For a while there, Peter Pan lapsed and entered the public domain. And you saw uh, you saw you saw a couple different films that were uh, that were telling stories about Neverland and about Pan and Hook and everything. So. It was interesting to see those because those were at least different tellings. But again, this is all stuff that we've seen before, and it's not really building too much on any of it. There was an entire movie just uh, called uh, Neverland, if I remember correctly, that tried to tell the origins of, of Captain Hook and Peter Pan as they entered into the realm through dimensional portals of all places, which was just a weird idea. Um, they tried to explain it away with sci-fi stuff. And that was, that was what happened with a lot of the remakes. Um, only Hook, starring Robin Williams, just took what was already established and built on it and made it into something interesting. And that's one of the reasons why Hook was popular and remains somewhat popular with a lot of fans. But the other ones, Pan, um, uh, a lot of these, not very popular. The only exception is the TV series Peter Pan and the Pirates that aired on Fox Kids back in the 90s with Tim Curry as Captain Hook because that is who you cast. <laughs> anyway, so given all of this, we can understand that Peter Pan and the Pirates, not a remake, right? It's a it's a weekly or, or daily adventure serial that takes you on adventures with Peter Pan versus Captain Hook and it, it gives us something that we haven't seen before. It also had a really kicking theme song, by the way. But... You wouldn't want to necessarily remake a lot of that stuff. One of the only instances where I think a remake actually worked was Ghostbusters the video game, where they just made the animation style a little bit more realistic to the actors rather than making them caricatures 
that one worked. I could enjoy that. That was tolerable. No reason not to enjoy it. But in all honesty, remakes do not make good movies. If you want to remake a movie, remake a movie that flopped. Remake a movie that uh, nobody remembers or that only has a bit of a cult following. You know, for a while there, Mad Max was a cult movie. And then it kept getting re-aired and the cult expanded and expanded. And we finally got a couple more sequels and everything years later. Okay. That was a cult movie for a long time. Um, the Howling was a cult movie and they eventually ended up remaking it. Why? Because they saw potential there. Sometimes if you remake a cult movie, it makes it into something better that the audience will really appreciate. Uh, one of the only movies that I that uh, remains a bit of a cult movie that I would not want to see them remake is Penelope, starring Christina Ricci. That one is such a perfect modern-day fairy tale that I would never want anyone to remake it. But when they wanted to make this Wednesday Addams series, speaking of Christina Ricci, they had her play a part. So it's like, okay, a little bit of fan service for the people who really liked the uh, 90s Adams Family. Great. You know, but she's not playing Wednesday. She's playing a different character. And they're making it into a mystery serial taking place at a boarding school. Okay. You've got some teenage drama a little bit in terms of developing relationships. Okay. You've got some mystery elements, some family elements. Okay. That's plenty of fertile ground. What's that doing? That's taking what we already know and expanding on it without erasing what already came before. That's the difference. That's why I don't hate Wednesday Adams. That's why a lot of people don't hate Wednesday Adams. We're okay with it. A lot of it's really enjoyable. It works. You don't re need to remake uh, Harry Potter. You don't need to remake Lord of the Rings. You don't need to remake the Batman for the umpteenth time. This is another thing, okay? Just getting back to the DC universe for a bit. They made Joker, right? Well, we already know about the Joker, right? Well, do we? We don't really know a lot about his backstory. So, in making the Joker, they made it A, very realistic, very much a real world for what becomes an, an unreal super criminal. Uh, just, a, just an unreal personality. Someone who wears clown makeup and terrorizes Gotham. Right? Okay, we look at that. How did he come to be this way in what is otherwise a very gritty, realistic world? that doesn't have a lot of very fantastical beings like that. So we come to understand it. He is already mentally ill. He is trying to keep it under control with medication and therapy. And then what creates that? Them cutting funding, them not supporting him, him having a job that decides uh, to let him work in unsafe conditions and be assaulted by people, uh, a society that is breaking down, you know, it even shows why did Bruce Wayne's parents get murdered? It was because you had forces leading to that. He was a strong public figure, Thomas Wayne. And he, in, in the story at least, he didn't care about people. Now in other versions, Thomas Wayne absolutely did care about people. Batman Begins, perfect example. So we're not seeing too much redone. We're not seeing too much changed. And this isn't the Joker that we had in uh, 1989's Batman. This is a different Joker. 
uh, with different origins. Okay, we can deal with that. You know, we're not going back and completely erasing. We're just saying, okay, well, how would a Joker-type villain come around in our world? Okay, well, here's some different factors that could all contribute to that. And I still uphold that that particular movie, the original idea that the writer came up with was the Joker sitting there on a late-night talk show with a host like Johnny Carson and trying to just uh, go through a normal interview before the Joker took a gun and bang-bang. Okay, so this is... I swear that the film, because it was leading to that so much and because the dialogue in that is so poignant and has so much gravitas, that that was where the rest of the film came from was that initial idea and it was interesting enough as to how everything led to that moment that it's it's fascinating to watch but then you have uh very soon after that came out you had the batman with robert pattinson and i swear that that has to be in the same universe because it does have a similar enough feel that i want to see that batman versus that joker i want to see that happen that would be so amazing. But okay. This one, we don't need to see the story of how Bruce's parents ended. We don't need a lot of that. You know, we don't we don't need the story of how he became Batman and everything. We already know. We've had Batman Begins. We've had 1989's Batman. We've had all this stuff. We know it. It's been done to death. So where are we coming in? Year two of his quest, of his campaign to wipe out crime in Gotham. What is he doing? He's going after the mob. Much like in uh, The Dark Knight and Batman Begins. And that was always part of a lot of Batman stories. Batman the Animated Series, perfect example. His regular villains weren't just the Joker and Two-Face and everything, but Rupert Thorne and Roland Daggett. These were regulars in the series. So it made perfect sense to have that be part of the focus. Um, likewise, you have the, the Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey movie. What did they take on? Black Mask and Victor Zaz. Lesser known villains, ones that aren't quite as flamboyant as the Joker. That works. And this was apparently the same uh, Harley Quinn as from uh, the Suicide Squad, I guess. But... At least it worked. I didn't hate it. There was a lot to enjoy there. The only thing I can't believe is that uh, she would have caught up to uh, a, a moving vehicle on roller skates. If there was a hill, okay, I could buy that. Roller skates don't really break all that well on hills. And the car would actually have to slow down a little bit in order to avoid losing control. Okay, you can, you can kind of appreciate maybe that, but... Otherwise, that one doesn't... <laughs> that one part really gets me. Uh, but, okay. Even with all that, you can enjoy it. You can appreciate it. It's a fun enough film. And it's something that we haven't seen before. Right? So in all of this, whenever you have a new element, you bring in a character who might have been underappreciated or never had their story told before. Shazam, Aquaman, Wonder Woman. That all works. 
it's solid enough storytelling. You just have to tell a compelling story. You have to make it their own thing and not make it all about uh, the characters that you've already seen and loved before. Oh, we're, you know, part of the problem with a lot of it is we're seeing the Flash movie. Okay, what's the Flash about? Well, he meets Batman. Why do we need him to meet Batman? Why? It's just for brand name recognition. It's just because, oh, we're bringing the original 90s Batman, even though it was made in 89 and released in 89, he was considered the 90s Batman. We're bringing that one, who was one of the most popular uh, you know, portrayals of Batman of all time. We're bringing that one out of retirement to play the part one more time as an older Batman who's um, just coming back to it for some reason. It's like, okay, but do we... I, I don't know. There were some parts of other uh, DC Universe Warner Brothers franchises that I did like. And the fact that they didn't make money off of like the first Suicide Squad movie, I blame solely on the editing. Because I've done a re-edit of it where there's a more consistent story from one part to the next. And you don't get the, f- the film's title finally a half hour into the film. You get it pretty much right there at the beginning as you're still uh, as you're still hearing House of the Rising Sun and everything the way I re-edited it that was how I made it work and it worked but for some people that didn't register when they were at Warner Brothers and, and I honestly wish that they would have taken a look at it and actually watched it um, because I just redid the first 10 minutes of it and it was better <laughs> by far you had a solid story for Deadshot. You had a solid story for Harley Quinn. And then you got introduced to um, Amanda Waller. You had no scene of Superman's funeral that was completely unnecessary because we didn't need that. We don't need to start introducing that. A lot of the story was told way more sequentially the way that I reworked it because the audience needs to not be hopping around all the time. And you actually had captions that said when something was taking place. So as a result, then, when Deadshot is meeting with, uh, is hanging out with his daughter, going Christmas shopping and so on, and then Batman rounds them up, that all happens in sequence so that you are on the same page as the movie the entire time. You aren't having to flash back and think back to an earlier part that was very brief right? It works. It's solid. It makes a lot more sense that way. It doesn't require the audience to do a lot more work in watching it other than just taking in what is on the screen as it is shown. So, given all of that, they they did eventually just completely reboot Suicide Squad and take a little bit of what we had before and they built on it, right? They didn't just wipe away and say, okay, forget all that, that didn't happen. No, they bothered to say, okay, that did happen, but let's just build on that. You know, this is one of the big complaints that a lot of people have with the Resident Evil franchise, which they're already talking about remaking. And they did remake. They made Welcome to Raccoon City. And it was very different from the first franchise, but it was good. I actually enjoyed it. It was a very interesting reinterpretation that was far closer to a lot of what uh, people say happened in the games. A lot of Let's Plays show a lot more of what 
sort of was happening in the games, and this was sort of happening while all of that other stuff was happening. So at least that worked. Whereas uh, the uh, miniseries Resident Evil that takes place in like South Africa or something like that, that's saying, okay, ignore all that other stuff, and this is our other story. <laughs> it's like, what? Why would you do that? Why would you tell everyone to completely ignore what's already been told and say to people, oh, you got to watch this now. This is our new story and it has new characters and we're introducing a completely new plot. Um, okay. Well, uh, problem is you're taking characters from the game. If you want to tell a completely new story, introduce some new characters, just like what happened with the video games. When they made uh, sequels to the video games and or they remade the first version as I recall, they didn't just say, okay, well, com ignore completely what happened. No, they said, okay, all of this stuff happened because the first game, they actually were like, oh, it's a good game, good story and all that bit of a fetch quest, but whatever. So in all of this, we can understand how remakes need to function if you're going to do them properly, where you're trying to essentially reboot the series. Okay, you don't like Batflack. We get it. You're going to cast Robert Pattinson. Fine. But build don't erase don't say okay ignore everything that happened before build on it you know we could easily very easily have um the robert pattinson batman movie and to a certain degree even the joker one still taking place within the snyder verse if you're so in love with that one which i'm not but we could easily have that I think that making Gotham and Metropolis Twin Cities was a stupid idea, <laughs> but that's me. Gotham already has a sister city right across the river. It's called Bloodhaven, and Metropolis is supposed to be in a completely different state, far, far away, not right across the river. Yeah. But given all that, remaking doesn't make for better movies. It doesn't make for a better franchise. It doesn't make for satisfied fans. Expand. One of the best things, uh, uh, another movie that I saw the same weekend, uh, actually the same night that I saw Shazam, was I saw uh, the Hellboy redo, the Hellboy reboot. And I loved it. Why? Because it didn't say ignore everything that came before. It just said, here's a Hellboy story. It's an entire story all on its own. It's very much just its own long episode of Hellboy going on an adventure, very much inspired by the comic books with a lot of the fun and adventure and silliness and darkness that people enjoy from the Hellboy series. It worked. I loved it. That and Shazam are two, uh, are two uh, superhero movies, comic book movies, to which I have given a very rare full score of 5 out of 5. I don't do that unless the film genuinely has no notes from me. I mean, you got to think about that. I am an anal retentive analytical jerk who will absolutely nitpick every little thing. One of my favorite movies is Keeping Mum, and I still have nitpicks with it. There are very few movies that I don't have at least some small issue with. <laughs> but this one, these two, I actually liked. Like, I won't watch them religiously or whatever, like I will 28 Days, but I've these are ones where if you put them on and you make me watch them, I, I won't complain. I'll sit there and enjoy them. And there's only a few movies where that'll happen. So 
again, they weren't remakes. Shazam was not a remake. It was its own thing. The Hellboy movie was a reboot, but it didn't erase what came before. It built. That's the key with every single one of these. Whenever you look at a remake, a reboot, whatever, always think, are we building or are we asking people to completely forget what came before? Just like the Resident Evil sequels. You have to remember sort of what came before, but also forget what came before at the same time. So those never quite worked for me. They didn't work for a lot of people because of that. And they also ignored a lot of what happened in the video games and decided to go off and do their own thing. And they're saying, okay, ignore everything that happened in the video games that we're based on. Right? This is part of the problem. This is why you couldn't remake Back to the Future, for example. It wouldn't work. You had too many elements coming together just right. King Kong you can remake because you're not necessarily watching it for the specific actor's performances. You're watching it for the stunning visuals. It's a spectacle movie. Spectacle movies are easy enough to reinterpret in a certain way. But Lord of the Rings, just getting back to the original crux of this discussion, Lord of the Rings is not just about spectacle. It's about plot. It's, it's almost entirely about plot and characters. When you have a story like that, you cannot just remake that. Jurassic Park, when they made that one, Michael Crichton actually wrote the script for that film. There was another writer brought on board, but he was the main person writing that script, that screenplay. What happened? The story was about characters. Characters and plot make the story. If it's just about spectacle, you can remake it. And you can add in your own characters and your own plot that make it a bit more interesting. Okay, Peter Jackson's King Kong. We're going to stick in a story about a girl who's a struggling uh, performer. She's starving because it's the Depression. Okay, where are we going to go from there? Okay, we've got a writer who is dragged along by this film director who's a bit of a flim-flam artist, a bit of a shyster. Okay, well, we've got some interesting interplay there. You actually, you know, you've got the one man who's uh, your typical leading man in movies, but he's actually a bit of a coward. Okay, this works. This gives us some dynamics. This gives us some facade to work with, with some of our characters that we uh, see, but we don't actually like. We've got some characters who we do like, we sympathize with because they're more real. They're more human to us. They understand the situation. Okay. That works. We can deal with that. You've got characters in The Lord of the Rings. Some you like, some you don't. You have your reasons why. Jurassic Park. You've got characters you like and characters you don't. And you have reasons why you like or don't like them. You don't like Wayne Knight's character. Because he's a bit of a jerk. He's very selfish. He's, you know, he's the kind of guy when he is a handful of whipped cream will just go ahead and put that on someone's piece of pie and ruin their dessert just as like a little bit of a thing he cares more about money he he's uh not very nice to a lot of the others he's sneaky we don't like him you could have him played by anyone and you wouldn't like him way knight does a phenomenal job though uh likewise the lawyer in jurassic park you don't like him you do like samuel l jackson who's very down to earth he's actually one of my favorite characters from the film uh, you have Ian Malcolm, 
you like him because he's very down to earth, even if he's a little bit too in love with himself, even if he's a little bit too much of a showman. You could easily see Ian Malcolm doing a TED Talk on chaos theory, right? But you also like Sam Neill, and, and you like all these other characters because they register with you. They're human. They they don't necessarily have any kind of sneaky agenda or they aren't uh, they don't have some kind of inhuman agenda where they don't care about other people so you sympathize with them because they would sympathize with you if you were in that situation that's a human connection that's something you need in protagonists one of the reasons why we like hobbits in the lord of the rings versus men and elves is because hobbits care about each other they aren't always just selfish and cruel and everything. When we're watching uh, the Hobbit franchise, it's not a remake. It builds on, it expands on, and we like them because they care about each other, whereas the dwarves don't always. The dwarves can be selfish and greedy. The dwarves can be hostile and antagonistic and mean. So they're a lot like Hobbits in a lot of ways, but they're different enough that we can appreciate that difference. That's monumental when you're writing these characters and these stories about people. You have to exemplify that. So this makes a huge difference when you're talking about different storytelling elements. You have to have something there for the audience to actually enjoy. Otherwise, it's not going to be worth our time. This is one of the reasons why The Rings of Power didn't quite work for me as much because we were hopping around a bit too much. And the characters were just a little bit too ambiguous to really latch on to. You know? We need to actually have something there that we like about them or that we don't like about them. We have to get that feeling, that sensibility. Whether you're talking a children's movie or a movie just for adults, you have to have that. Getting back to the Joker, we like Happy to a large degree because he cares. And we see how he falls how he comes to not care about others. How he comes to uh, not be the kind of person we want to be around. Um, likewise uh, with uh, the Batman. We continue to like him, even though we see that in many ways he is compassionless and everything. Why? Because he learns a lesson. Right? Spoiler for those who don't know, but the Riddler recruits a lot of mediocre white men to go and open fire at the Gotham Arena, which is uh, this uh, shelter space that, that everyone can gather in during an emergency. So they flood part of Gotham. That's part of the Riddler's plan. And the other part of his plan is that once everyone is gathered there, then a bunch of these uh, mediocre guys are going to get their guns and go up in the rafters, and they're going to shoot everyone. Right? And then, what does uh, one of the guys say? I am vengeance. What does the Batman say at the start of the film? I am vengeance. And so he realizes that they are not as far a cry from him. And he has to be watchful of how he takes this quest. It can't just be about vengeance. It can't just be about hatred for criminals. It has to be about justice. And that's, that's something that later Batman brings up a lot, especially with Damian Wayne, his uh, son with uh, Talia al Ghul, that 
there is a difference between vengeance and justice. This is something that we see a lot of in Batman Begins. The difference between vengeance and justice. The difference between enacting your own kind of justice where you don't care about people and the justice that is for the greater good and saves the most lives. So there's the callous form of justice and then the noble form of justice. So in all of these different iterations, it's like, okay, what are we going for? What is the motive? What is the uh, character arc that the character learns or that the character grows to? How does the character change over time? You see it in Harley, Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey. You see it in a lot of these films that expand and build on. You see it even in uh, the Suicide Squad reboot. I genuinely loved that. I could watch that anytime and genuinely just be thrilled because of all of the good parts to it. But I've already gone on for long enough. The point is, is that some things you can absolutely remake because there's enough there that you can fill in. There's enough there that you can expand on. It worked relatively well in Peter Jackson's King Kong. It worked really well in some other films, but it genuinely doesn't work with remakes, and that's what makes it more painful. It can work well in a sequel. It can work well in a solo movie for a character that was already in another venture, like when we got the Harley Quinn movie. Uh, or in the Aquaman film, all that. Wonder Woman, we already saw her in Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, and we got more of her. And it satisfied audiences, and it made it work. It made it work because then we could actually register with something. There was something new to take in, even though we already knew a lot about it. Even Wonder Woman 84 had something new to it. And it wasn't just something fluffy, but something actually that your mind had to sort of digest and work through and that you could get more out of on the rewatch. This is one of the reasons why I mentioned 28 Days before. 28 Days is one of my favorite movies because there's so much to digest, so much to work through, so much to navigate, so many little things to appreciate on the rewatch. When you do a remake or a reboot, there has to be something there. They haven't remade Gone with the Wind simply for the fact that there's already enough there. They could make Return to Terra, but I don't know if they would want to. So with that said, what do you think? What do you, Were there any good re, re, remakes or reboots in your mind? Were there any ones that you just really loved? Uh, were there solo films, like not including uh, or, or not discounting Solo, a Star Wars story, uh, <laughs> directed by Ron Howard eventually uh, when they uh, were making it. Uh, were there any ones like that that just really resonated with you over time? I know that one of my absolute favorites uh, in terms of kind of a reboot was Return to Oz with Feruza Balk and all that. That movie was amazing. But what do you think? Tell me about it. I'd love to hear it. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye.